Welcome back to the Dirt Show. Boy, did I get mail on Martha's Vineyard. I tell you, my viewers and listeners don't like Martha's Vineyard. They think it's an elitist and, and snobby place. And, you know, they have a point. Um, but, you know, Martha's Vineyard did do what it could for the 50 or so uh, refugees. Uh, as you know, I offered to pay for their food and their medical care and others came forward as well. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of hypocrisy on Martha's Vineyard, but not necessarily about that. We'll talk about that maybe during the letter period. Today, I want to talk about something really interesting. I don't know how many of you saw the serial that was on television involving this guy named Adnan Syed, uh, who was convicted of murdering former girlfriend and um, served many, many, many years in prison. And a, a filmmaker, uh, Sarah uh, Koenig, did a brilliant uh, documentary uh, raising questions about uh, whether he was guilty or innocent. Um, ultimately, left it up to the viewers, much like my son Elon, who produced uh, Reversal of Fortune um, about my Bambulo case, really left it up to the viewers to determine whether they thought he was innocent or guilty. Those, for me, are the best kinds of movies or, or series if, if you're left with a question and you end the series or you'll end the movie arguing with each other in, in a nice way, obviously, about whether you think he's guilty or not guilty. When I read the judge's opinion and saw the prosecutor's um, statements in this case and read the articles in the papers, <clears throat> I came away myself saying um, that I wasn't positive that he was innocent. I was positive about one thing. He was framed. And uh, you can frame a guilty person. Now, he may be innocent. And um, I don't think he'll be tried again because he served so many years and the evidence is today so un uncertain. What was the major thing that I think turned the government, the government itself, the prosecution walked into court and said, you got to free this guy. We're not confident that he was uh, guilty. They didn't say he was innocent, but we're not confident that the trial was fair. What happened in the case, and this is just outrageous, and it happens time and time and time and time again. I've seen so many of these cases. Government prosecutors withhold exculpatory evidence. It is completely unconstitutional to do so. It is completely illegal to do so. It is completely unethical and unprofessional to do so. But they do it all the time. In this case, this guy was up for murder. The evidence against him, there was circumstantial evidence, enough perhaps to convict, and the jury did convict. But the government withheld the fact that the prosecutors themselves were investigating two other people who might very well have committed the crime, including one about whom the evidence was, if anything, even stronger than against uh, Zayed. And it's the fact that prosecutors withheld this evidence that they allowed the case to go to the jury without the jury knowing the full picture. Um, and that's why I use the term. I used it in the Von Bulow case. I've used it in other cases. Um, the governments often try to frame people they believe to be guilty. I think that was true of the uh, uh, O.J. Simpson case. There's no doubt in my mind that evidence was planted in that case. But there's also no doubt in my mind that prosecutors firmly believe that O.J. Simpson was guilty. And they thought by tampering with evidence a little bit, <clears throat> they would do justice. I first thought about this or learned about it when I ran into Roy Cohen, 
um, the <laughs> brilliant but notorious lawyer who was one of Donald Trump's mentors, and, and I worked with him uh, on the Von Bulow case. He represented Klaus Von Bulow's daughter. I represented Klaus Von Bulow. And he bragged to me one day um, that one of the proudest moments of his life is when he helped frame the Rosenbergs. The Rosenbergs, you may remember, were Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were executed in the electric chair for having spied for the Soviet Union. I have a slight connection to the case. Uh, my distant cousin, Rabbi Kozlow, was the rabbi who basically presided over their death. He was the rabbi who gave them whatever the Jewish version of last rites is. And um, so I had heard from him many times about how horrible their execution was, particularly Ethel Rosenberg, where the first child didn't kill her, et cetera. It's, it's a different story, of course. I mean, the, the, the issue is this. Um, Roy Cohen knew that Julius Rosenberg was guilty. And there's no doubt in, in the world that Julius Rosenberg was a spy for the Soviet Union. Not Ethel, but Julius was. How did he know? Because they had wiretapped an embassy, which was illegal and improper and undiplomatic. And as the result of the wiretap, which they couldn't introduce into evidence, they knew that Julius Rosenberg was guilty. They knew that he had given secrets about the atomic bomb, not secrets that really would enable Russia to build an atomic bomb, but secrets that nobody, no American should ever turn over. They knew he was guilty, but they couldn't use the evidence. And so Roy Cohn set out to frame a guilty man and uh, and also had ex-party contact with the judge, etc. Uh, the conviction, if all those facts were known, would have been reversed. Now, why did they execute Ethel Rosenberg? That's interesting. Um, they knew she was innocent. Um, you know, she was a communist. She sympathized with her husband. She wasn't guilty. But they thought if they threatened to execute his wife, who he loved, the mother of his two children, young kids, that he would name the names of spies uh, who uh, were his uh, contacts in the United States, including perhaps some fairly high-ranking people in the atomic energy um, business. Um, and uh, what they didn't know is that he was such a determined communist that he allowed his wife to die um, instead of turning over the names of spies, which he could have done and could clearly have saved his wife's life, probably could have saved his own life. But, you know, when you get a zealot like that, uh, he's not going to do it. And he didn't do it. And of course, two young children were left. They changed their name to Mirpole. They've written books about the case, etc. But it was the first time I had heard about framing a guilty man. And I thought about it. And of course, it's, it's the most logical thing in the world. Um, prosecutors, FBI agents, when they know somebody is guilty, when they know for sure, because they've seen the evidence, but the evidence is inadmissible, or they can't access it, or the, the witness won't testify, but the witness has told them. Um, it's so frustrating, you know, so frustrating. You know the person is guilty. You know the person is going to win a trial if nothing extraordinary is done. So you take the law into your own hands. It's a form of civil disobedience. Wrong. It's wrong. You can't distort the legal system by allowing these kinds of shortcuts and tricks to be done. Now, was that done in the uh, Adnan Syed case, according to the filmmaker? And I've seen the film and I like it very much, uh, uh, Sarah Koenig. It, it, it was done. She's not clear whether they framed an innocent man or a guilty man. It's very, very possible he's innocent 
In fact, I think on balance, the likelihood of him being innocent is slightly greater than the likelihood of him being guilty. But there is a substantial likelihood that uh, he did it. And um, but because the constable bungled, to quote Justice Cardozo's uh, eloquent term, because the constable bungled because it wasn't a bungling in this case, because the government willfully and deliberately, prosecutors willfully and deliberately withheld evidence that might have changed the jury's verdict. If the jury learned that the prosecution itself was seriously investigating two other people, one of whom had a motive, had opportunity, um, and and might very well have been the killer, um, the jury might very well have had a reasonable doubt. Even reasonable doubt is so counterintuitive. What you really have to tell the jury when you're a defense lawyer like I am, one of the questions I always ask is, if after hearing all the evidence, you're, you're pretty sure um, that the defendant did it, you're, you're pretty sure, you're pretty certain that the defendant did it, would you vote to convict? And hands go up and I say, strike them. They're not on my jury. Pretty well known or you know, pretty likely, that's not enough. You have to know beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet what you're asking juries to do is to let people go who they believe are guilty. That's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. That's why I've always taught my students that arguing reasonable doubt is not going to win you the case. Uh, you, Although the burden of proof is clearly on the prosecution, and although you're supposed to win if there's a reasonable doubt, the only way you're going to win a murder case is if you prove your client is innocent. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, uh, who was the, the great uh, TV um, lawyer who used to not only prove his client innocent, but before the end of the trial, he would point to who the guilty person uh, was. That's not real life. In real life, we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. Um, in many of my cases of my clients, and I've won a lot of um, homicide and homicide-related cases. I probably have the best record of success as an appellate lawyer in, in homicide and homicide-related cases. In the end, sometimes I don't know. Um, but it's enough for me that there's a reasonable doubt because I'm a lawyer. But is that enough for a jury? Um, very, very often not. Now, you know, in some respects, um, theoretically, it's a shame that um, Adnan Sayed won't be retried because if he were retried with all the evidence coming in, with all the prosecution errors being undone for the second trial, it would be really interesting to see if a jury convicted. I don't think we'll ever know that because the fact that he served so many years uh, uh, and he may be innocent is probably going to be enough to persuade um, the prosecutors not to bring the case. Also, you know, witnesses are dead, memories fade. Very hard to bring a case 22, uh, you know, years and years and years later. I know I'm facing that now. You know, I've been accused by a woman I never met, never heard of, that 22 years ago, she came in front of my house in Cambridge with another woman. And we both, both of us, I had sex with both of them in front of my house in Cambridge. Um, uh, but that's 22 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I remember very well. Of course, it's easy to remember you didn't do something. But um, um, it's, it's, if you have to disprove guilt, and you know, some of you have read my book, Guilt by Accusation, today, if you're charged with anything sexual, the, the, not only is there a burden on you, but an almost impossible burden on you to prove your innocence. In my case, you know, I have 
her lawyer on tape saying she's wrong, simply wrong. Other lawyers admitting it, emails admitting that she never met me. That's not enough in the minds of some people. If a woman accuses a man, that's the end. And I get all these emails from people, all these these um, messages from people who watch my show, presuming that I'm, I'm I'm guilty because I knew Epstein. So I must be guilty if I knew Epstein. I was his lawyer. Uh, in any event, um, it, it was the right decision. And what pleases me most is that it was not a decision made really by the court. It was a decision made by prosecutors and more and more prosecutors' offices. Um, I know the one in, in Miami-Dade County, who was a phenomenal uh, prosecutor, uh, uh, <clears throat> Kathy Rundle, uh, who's a personal friend. Um, she set up a kind of innocence project within her office. Um, the Brooklyn DA's office has set up an innocence project. Many, many uh, prosecutors' offices have set up projects where they hire a defense lawyer, basically, to evaluate cases and bring to their attention these cases. There's an old story when Earl Warren was the DA of Alameda County. He would call all the defense attorneys, it was a small county in those days, and he would call all the defense attorneys into his office and say, look, I trust all of you. You're decent people. You're good people. Um, if any of you will come into my office, and look me in the eye and tell me this guy, this one case of all the cases I have, this one guy is innocent. Earl Warren said, I will drop the charges. What a terrible position he put defense lawyers in. If they don't come to the office, they're basically saying, no, I think my client is, is guilty. Um, I don't know if anybody ever took him up on it and came into the office. I knew Earl Warren. And of course, if anybody did come to the office and told him that he'd keep his word. But as a criminal defense lawyer, if I were at that meeting, I would have to say, Mr. Warren, I'm sorry, I can't play your game. Um, I'm either going to tell you all my clients are innocent or I'm not going to say anything, but I'm not going to distinguish between clients. Remember, I have lawyer client privilege. I know things that you can't know. What if clients confess to me that they're, they're guilty? Um, and, and I have you know, one client who I think is is innocent. I just can't throw my other clients under the bus. So although it sounded good uh, in the end, I think it's not something that the criminal justice system could operate under. By the way, I've heard other DAs make make similar statements. And I have on occasion gone to a DA and said um, in, in the appropriate circumstance, in the appropriate context, when the issue was really something where I had to make a statement. I have asserted the innocence of my clients rarely. I almost never publicly do that because I'm concerned that if I publicly assert the innocence of some clients, it will assume that I believe the other clients are, 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 are guilty. In one case, uh, a well-known case, uh, there was just no evidence of a crime at all. It was just not criminal. It was an accidental death. And so I was willing to say it in that case, but it's very difficult. And it poses uh, uh, ethical dilemmas that are complex. But I'm glad it was the prosecutors who brought this to the attention. They, the same thing happened in the Central Park uh, case. Remember the Central Park Five, these five wilding uh, youths um, uh, who uh, were not wonderfully innocent people. They were making trouble in the park, but they were prosecuted and convicted for nearly murdering a young woman who worked for Goldman Sachs who almost died as a result of the beating. And she, of course, was unconscious. She couldn't 
um, identify anybody and, and there wasn't any uh, DNA evidence or any clear forensic evidence. And they were convicted. And ultimately, uh, DA Robert Morgenthau, who's also a friend of mine, passed away a couple of years ago as did his wife, great people. Um, Morgenthau went to the judge and said, I think they may be innocent and I think we should release them. And they were released now. They were also made heroes. Um, but there was a real question of whether they deserve to be made heroes. They deserve to be made martyrs because they served time in, in, in prison. Um, but in that case, the evidence was pretty clear. Somebody else who was in the park eventually admitted to the assault with, well, assault with intent to kill or attempted murder. I don't remember exactly what they were charged with. But in the end, the five went free and the one who admitted it stayed in jail. Now, you know, he was in jail for life. So he didn't have much to lose by saying that. And, but the DA believed it. And as a result of that, they, they, were, they were set free. That's the right result. It's the right result to set somebody free when you're not sure. Uh, the law doesn't favor that. The law says you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt at the trial, but you can't get a reversal of the conviction after the case is over on collateral attack just by showing a reasonable doubt. You have to, at that point, have far more compelling evidence of, of innocence. And, and that's daunting and difficult. And often what happens, I had a case like this, um, you go into court and you say, if you just give me subpoena power, I'll be able to prove the innocence of my client or just give me the, the bloody towel and I'll do a DNA test. And they come back with a catch 22 saying, well, unless you have enough evidence to prove his innocence, we're not going to give you the evidence that will prove his innocence. And so uh, often the courts and the government will not allow you to get the evidence necessary to prove innocence. They want you to prove it without the evidence. Then you can go and get the evidence. It seems quite circular and quite unjust. But, you know, the law tries to balance finality against justice. Um, finality says, you know, if you've been found guilty, that's really the end of it. We don't want to have every case reopened, every issue relitigated, uh, stare decisis, let the thing stand, um, you know, finality. But I don't believe in finality. I, I think that if a person is in jail uh, or if a person certainly is on death row, there is no finality um, until we really exhaust every every conceivable, every conceivable right. Um, I never give up on my clients. I got a call today from a woman who I'm, I've been representing for many, many, many years. Um, and um, uh, we talked about her claims uh, of uh, an unjust uh, conviction claims that I wouldn't 100% agree with, um, but it's been difficult to bring those claims uh, to the attention of the court because it's, it's years later. So, look, our, our justice system is imperfect. Um, I like to say about America and about democracy in general, the worst system in the world except for all the others. Um, I can't say that about the American justice system. It is not the best system. It is not even the least worst system. Um, it's a pretty bad system. It discriminates clearly on racial and gender and uh, ethnic and wealth grounds, um, uh, rich people have a much better shot at getting justice, which is why I do half of my cases pro bono for poor people. 
Um, the judges uh, aren't the best uh, necessarily. Some are very good, but some are not. Uh, often a judgeship is simply a reward for political partisanship. Um, juries are ordinary people off the street that uh, uh, you would never pick to determine scientific truth. Uh, you pick them because, again, they're the least worst. You don't want experts making that determination. You don't want the government making that determination in a democracy. Juries make that determination. It's interesting that very few European countries use juries, except in a kind of advisory way uh, or along with the judge. Even in England, where trial by jury was essentially uh, developed, the jury has less power today than it used to have and less power than it has in the in the United States, because juries make mistakes, and there are obviously two kinds of mistakes they can make. They can convict the innocent, they can acquit the guilty. And our system claims that we would prefer them to acquit the guilty than to convict the innocent. They claim that in theory, but in practice, um, I, I don't think that's really the, the way, the principle upon which our justice system is based. So uh, what's your views on this? Um, how many of you have seen the the series. Do you think he's innocent? Do you think he's guilty? Do any of you think he shouldn't have gotten a new trial after prosecutors withheld evidence of two other suspects that could clearly have turned it around? I think it's an open and shut case that he should have gotten a new trial. I think it's great that Sarah Koenig did this series, and I think more of these series can be done. I remember once many years ago being asked, um, what did I think of arguing in the Supreme Court, the court of last resort? I said, no, it's not the court of last resort. In those days, it was, I said, the court of last resort was Nightline when it was the most prominent um, uh, late night news program. And I would bring my cases to Nightline if I lost in the courts. Um, and so, um, in fact, I did have a case where I, I lost in the Supreme Court, a capital punishment case. I lost five to four. I brought it to Nightline and we eventually saved the lives of uh, of those uh, two young uh, young defendants. So um, I, it's an interesting story, and uh, I, I don't know whether or not in the end my question can be answered. Did, did the government frame an innocent person or a guilty person? I'm clear he was framed, and I'm, I think he was probably innocent, but I'm not sure. But I don't have to be sure. That's just me as a person. So let's get to some of the mail. Again, you say you'd probably vote against Trump for the third time. Does that mean you're in favor of open borders, infanticide, the lawlessness of our cities, the corruption of the FBI and DOJ, and the continued march towards socialism? No, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It means I'm in favor of gay marriage. It means I'm in favor of reasonable gun control. It means I'm against capital punishment. It means I'm in favor of separation of church and state. It means I'm in favor of reasonable abortion laws. Uh, it means I'm in favor of the Democratic uh, agenda and platform more than the Republican platform. You know, efforts have been made now for years, become a Republican, become a I have a friend down in Florida. I get a, an email about once a week. It, isn't it time? Can't you join the Republican Party? I cannot join the Republican Party because of their views on these social issues. I wrote a book about it, uh, calling the case for liberalism in uh, an age of radicalism or why I left the left but couldn't join the right. I can't become a Republican, sorry. Um, and I don't believe that Joe Biden stands for um, these issues. These are complex and difficult issues. I'm critical of Biden. I think he could do a much better job 
on the borders. Um, I think he could do a job, better job. I think all governors and mayors can do a better job about lawlessness on the streets, uh, corruption of the FBI. I don't think the FBI is corrupt. I think we can use uh, n- new leadership. Um, uh, I don't believe infanticide is on the agenda of the Democratic Party or that anybody in the Democratic Party favors it. And I don't believe we're marching towards socialism. I think we're a free market capitalist uh, country. Um, I have no fear. Uh, I'm, I'm not a socialist. I'm certainly against communism. And I would never vote for a party that I thought was advocating socialism. I could not vote for um, uh, Bernie Sanders. I could not vote for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, there are people in the Democratic Party who fit this, not the infanticide, but some of the other descriptions. And um, But they're not in control of the Democratic Party. And they don't write the agenda. They don't write the platform. So I look at the totality of circumstances, and at the moment, I'm still going to vote for Joe Biden if he runs against Donald Trump. But we'll see who the candidates are. I got a lot of letters about that. Um, and then some letters about immigration. Um, how about they go through the normal immigration process of the United States? Our process is easier than immigrating to Canada or Mexico. It is. I agree with you. And I think people should go through the normal uh, process. Now, there are generally two kinds of of people. One, people seeking asylum when Castro took over Cuba. Um, People didn't quite swim from Cuba to to, uh, the Keys of Florida. But they almost did that. They took little boats. And as soon as they set foot on the United States, they were legitimate asylum seekers. And we have a policy. We should have a policy. I wish we had that policy in World War II during the Holocaust. We did not um, to give special deference to people who are asylum seekers who were threatened with death or rape or um, serious bodily harm. Um, uh, They get preference uh, because of the immediacy, a preference of coming into the United States, not necessarily preference of getting citizenship. And for other people, you know, they fit into several categories. People who, like my grandparents, um, came to America to seek a better life and created a better life for their children and and grandchildren. If my grandparents hadn't come from Poland in 1899, I wouldn't be here today. I'd have been killed in the Holocaust. Obviously, I was uh, three or four years old when they started uh, murdering Jewish babies and Jewish children. I would never have survived in the part of Poland that my family was from. So I'm very sympathetic to asylum seekers and very sympathetic to immigrants. And I just think we should make it easier and we should never confuse humanitarian issues with uh, political issues. Uh, And I would hope the Democrats and the Republicans could get together and work out a reasonable approach to immigration, a reasonable approach to a path to citizenship. I hope we can do it. Now, here's a lie. Uh, the poem, I was talking about Emma Lazarus, give us your poor, your et cetera, et cetera, was not part of France's grip of Lady Liberty. That's true. It wouldn't be because they wouldn't say, give us your poor. That was an American, Emma Lazarus, who was an immigrant, or the children of immigrants who came to America, who said it. The poem was added later. That's true. And was not approved by New York nor the U.S. voters. It certainly was approved by New York and New Jersey which share ownership in the Statue of Liberty. And it's uh, part of the American tradition, part of the American legacy. The Statue of Liberty stands for what that poem stands for. And uh, uh, when many of your grandparents and great-grandparents came to America and saw that great lady standing there promising liberty, 
uh, it was the greatest moment in their life. So let's not uh, in any way insult the poem or the people who wrote it or the status of the poem. It's very, very important. Uh, okay. Uh, comparing illegals to Holocaust victims is wrong. I agree with you completely. I don't believe we should make any such comparison. I certainly didn't make any such comparison uh, myself. Uh, trying to pull at our heartstrings. No, I am pulling at your heartstrings for any people who are in need of uh, humanitarian effort, but I'm not comparing them to the Holocaust. There's no comparison. Um, and, um, um, and I think we should stay away from any comparisons like that. So, um, okay. Here's somebody who ref would refuse to shake my hand. Here's what he says. I would not shake his, my hand, uh, either, since he voted for Biden, how can an intelligent man vote stupidly? Let's assume I'm stupid. Let's assume I'm not intelligent. Let's assume I'm making the wrong choice. Why wouldn't you shake hands with me? You're part of the problem. The problem is not only from the left. They won't shake hands with me because I defended uh, Trump, even though I didn't vote for him. But you won't shake hands with me because I voted for Biden. You're just as bad, just as hypocritical, just as dangerous to the future of this country as are the people on the left. That's the problem. The problem is that intolerant people, both on the right and on the left, refuse to engage in discourse and dialogue. Shame on you, but I'll shake hands with you. See you tomorrow.